Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. We're here today with a professor of English at Stony Brook University, Andrew Newman. We're going to be discussing his uh, new book published by University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, as well as the Omohundro Institute, really American History and Culture. Again, the book is Allegories of Encounter, Colonial Literacy, and Indian Captivities. Welcome to the show, Professor Newman. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So before we get in, dive into the questions, let's talk a little bit about the cover and your selection of images for the cover. What can you tell us about that? I had a really difficult time finding cover images. The press asked me for input, and I spent uh, you know, just hours uh, looking at Google images and looking through um, digital collections and archives. Um, and what I was looking for is some image that combined the idea of literacy, um, reading, writing, alphabetic literacy, and Indian captivity, um, because it was it was something I had read about so much. Um, I'd seen a lot of verbal dis- descriptions of captives reading and writing, but I couldn't find a visual one. Um, and actually, I, I found like what I thought of as the perfect image from a different context. Um, it really illustrated what my book was about, but it wasn't appropriate for mine, um, from Barbary captivity, stories of, of Europeans who were captured, um, held captive in, in North Africa. And it was of a woman sitting inside, um, really was sort of what looked like a teepee, but was um, supposed to be some sort of North African lodging um, with her captives or her, her captors on the outside. And she was sitting inside and it was kind of illuminated and she was reading a, sitting in a chair reading a book. Uh, and I, I was looking for a counterpart from that for that in the North American context. Um, but what we ended up doing um, was selecting a combination of images and making a kind of a collage. Um, so the top part of the book uh, is uh, a selection from the very uh, iconic um, woodcut alphabet from the New England primer. Um, it's almost like a, a cliche um, of colonial literacy. Um, and we selected these particular letters, G, H, and J, uh, which also speak to the idea of uh, the allegories that get enacted um, in reading. Um, G, as runs the glass, man's life doth pass, my book and heart shall never part. Job feels the rod, yet blesses God. That last, um, the J in particular, uh, is a theme that gets um, replayed over and over again in the 17th century um, Protestant captivity narratives, uh, that the captivity is, a, is an ordeal that gets under, um, sub, that the faithful get subjected to, and they come out on the other side better for having been scourged or punished by God. So that's the top part of the book cover. And then the bottom part is, uh, from a 19th century history of, of King Philip's or Metacom's War, and it's an illustration of uh, Mary Rowlandson's um, 1682 captivity narrative um, in which, uh, so the picture is of 
a, a white woman and some children inside a canoe. Presumably they're crossing the Connecticut River, which is another uh, a scene that I write about in the book. So those two those two images together, the King Philip's War um, illustration and the woodcut alphabet, uh, speak to the, this combination of literacy and captivity. In your book, what are the roles of captivity narratives and literacy events in ethno-historical contexts, as well as reception and experience in allegorical parallels? If possible, please also explain your distinction between story and discourse. Sure. I'll start with the story-discourse distinction, which is a very basic uh, borrowing from uh, narratology or the study of how narratives work. Uh, in, in narratology, uh, the story is kind of like what happens, especially in a fictional novel um, or a fictional narrative. Uh, the um, events that the protagonist undergoes, um, for example. Um, but the discourse is the way the story is told. So if you think about a, a first-person narrative, um, you know, maybe that a kind of a ghost story that takes place on the, you know, that's set with the speaker um, sitting at the fireside, um, the speaker might um, order the events in such a way as to emphasize suspense or to keep some, uh, you know, some of the um, plot elements hidden from the um, from the auditors until he or she reaches the you know the the climax and so on to have a big reveal. Um, but in in real life, the reveals don't necessarily happen in the way they do in stories. So that's the way or the way they do in narratives. So that's the way we can think of that distinction. The story is the what actually took place, whereas the, um, the discourse is the way that it's told, the words of the story. Uh, but that's a distinction that's um, in narratology, typically applied to fiction. Uh, and what I'm doing in my book is thinking about how it works in non-fictional first-person narratives, um, where we then might have a third term, which is not only um, you know, what are the events that the protagonist or the, the teller, uh, in this case, the narrator of a captivity narrative, believes happened, but what was actually going on. Uh, so we have this third term, which is sort of reality, to add to the story discourse distinction. Uh, so the way that plays out in captivity narratives with respect to literacy uh, is that what I'm focused on um, well, actually, first, let me let me speak a little bit about how that maps onto a disciplinary distinction, uh, because what what I suggest is that just as a generalization, uh, historians are more interested in story, whereas literary scholars tend to emphasize discourse. That is to say that uh, when historians use captivity narratives as sources, they're interested in the captivity itself and um, what the captivity narrative can tell us about that ethno-historical context. Um, about what was actually taking place between captives and captors, about the the wars in which the captivity narratives are typically set. Um, a, a great example, um, excellent book, is, is Christina Snyder's Slavery in Indian Country, um, where she uses many captivity narratives and their primary sources um, about uh, what was actually taking place, so the story in those narratives. So by contrast, literary scholars, um, not as a rule, but as a tendency, are typically more interested in, um, the, in the discourse, in the cultural work that those captivity narratives do, in the, 
in the author's production as opposed to the protagonist's experience. Um, and there, uh, another excellent book about captivity narratives, I'm thinking about Teresa Toulouse's uh, The Female Position, um, which is a historicist study of the work that captivity narratives were doing um, in, you could say, in uh, early New England and in the colonial world that... Um, or excuse me, in, in the early modern world that those narratives were participating in through their discourse. So I'm trying to kind of bridge that gap between literary study and, and historical study. And the way that I do that is by focusing on literacy. Literacy events is a term that I borrow from sociolinguistics and academic literacy studies. A literacy event is composed of uh, literacy practices uh, reading, writing, recollecting, um, speaking about literature, a literacy event can be described, or the definition that um, Shirley Bryce Heath, the sociolinguist, provides is any event or action sequence uh, involving the uh, reception or production of uh, of a literary, of excuse me, of a text, of a written text. That's a paraphrase of her definition. So what I sort of the genesis of the book, what I saw in a lot of uh, very well-known captivity narratives is that they feature scenes in which the protagonist, the captive, uh, is receiving um, a book, uh, reading um, reading a narrative that they acquire, um, often bestowed by the Native American captors themselves, um, but reading a book that they acquired as, as captives or reading a book that they carried into captivity with them. Um, sometimes writing in a journal, and sometimes that journal is the basis for the narrative that gets published, um, you know, years or even decades later, so that the production of the narrative is in itself part of the captivity in those instances. And what those scenes of literacy or, or representations of literacy events um, show me or lead me to is really a different way of thinking about intertextuality, uh, which is a very uh, prevalent concept in literary study, but usually it's thought of as belonging to uh, the sort of the post-production of the captivity narrative, um, which is to say that intertextuality is something that is the production of the author um, or belongs to discourse. Uh, the connections with other works like the Bible or, or secular literature that um, get brought out um, through literary illusion. Uh, so they're thought of as belonging to the discourse. But for me, um, what I see um, in these scenes of reading is that the captive is actually experiencing literature or incorporating literature um, into his or her experience of captivity. Um, and in that sense, other stories are informing the story that gets produced by the captivity. Uh, I think I'm slipping a little bit there and speaking about story in that sense. And that's one of the challenges of talking about um, narratology is that um, our sort of lay use of story, um, you know, gets conflated with the um, with that technical distinction between story and discourse. But maybe it helps to illustrate to say one of the alternate titles of the uh of the book that I thought of while I was trying to come up with a title was literacy and the story of captivity. Interesting. Um, so in Mary Rowlandson's 1682 captivity narrative, 
how and why did the narrator use biblical rhetoric to depict and comment on heteroglossia featuring multilateral communicative events, from her captivity paralleling a sister's death to temporal antitypes of the, quote, Old Testament Jews attacked by heathen enemies? Yeah, that... That that question really makes me reflect upon the, the uh, degree of jargon in my book. Uh, it's one of the challenges is uh, you know writing as a <laughs> literary scholar, especially for an audience of um, of historians. I think that um, historians have more experience writing for a broader audience than literary scholars do, where we really do tend to um, you know to dig in with the with the um, jargon. Um, and incidentally, one of the it was really sort of one of the pleasures and learning experiences in working with the Omohundro Institute, which is uh, principally but not exclusively a historian's press, is that they really pushed me to um, you know to make it more accessible, maybe more accessible than that um, than that little excerpt sounds, um, and also to sort of marginalize a lot of the scholarly discussion um, to footnotes instead of. Um, Carrying on kind of a, a jargony conversation with other scholars um, through the through the writing. So, in answer in answer to the question, I'll, I'll start just by um, trying to elucidate some of that um, some of the words that that you used. Uh, heteroglossia um, is a term that's derived from the theorist um, Mikhail Bakhtin, uh, but it just re- it just means literally um, multiple voices uh, and. Uh, in some of the earlier work on Rowlandson's narrative, um, that, that was the focus. Like there's all these, all these different uh, sort of voice elements in her in her discourse. Um, there's her reproduction of Native American speech. Um, there's her kind of complainy, whiny voice, um, and then there's her this orthodox voice that seems to be um, suffused with biblical rhetoric. She's always quoting the Bible, uh, you know, all throughout. And that um, that heteroglossia was kind of uh, the occasion for a critical a critical controversy. Um, so it's by far the most famous captivity narrative, or at least the most studied one. Um, it's it's often featured in early American literature survey courses. So um, when when I talk to people about working with captivity narratives, like she's the name who usually comes up, like oh yeah, who was that again? And I say, was it Mary Rowlandson? And they say yes, um, because that's the, that's the one that um, you know they may have read as undergraduates. Uh, and her narrative, um, just to give a little bit of a you know a quick quick descriptor, um, she was captured in a raid on Lancaster um, in um, sixteen I think sixteen seventy five or sixteen seventy four, but it's during King Philip's War, um, and um, and brought into captivity. Um, so the events that she's depicting are as a um, as a prisoner of war um, uh, among um, Wampanoags and Nipmunks and Narragansett um, Narragansett Indians, uh, and. Uh, she also acquires a Bible in, in her captivity. Um, I should say that one of, um, after um, the, uh, early in the narrative, um, some um, soldiers or war- warriors came back from um, a raid on Medfield um, in the Massachusetts colony, and one of them gave her a Bible that he was carrying in a basket. He asked her if she would want one, and he, she said, would the Indians let me read? And they, he said, yes. Um, actually, in that instance, he answers, if I remember right, um, he um, actually he just says they would. There's another instance where um, she quotes one of the one of her captors as responding to a question um, by saying uh, "nux" as she writes it, "nux," 
um, which was uh, Algonquian word for yes, or at least her representation of it. So it's an instance of that idea of heteroglossia. Um, she's citing uh, a Native American speech and, and what was um, sort of definitively a colonial genre of the captivity narrative. Um, but what I mean uh, in the question you asked, heteroglossia featuring multilateral communicative events. So for me, that uh, Bible that she received is key to the multilateral character of the communicative events, which is to say, in Mary Rowlandson's understanding, when she opened up the Bible and, and read, um, she was hearing the word of God, um, or God was communicating to her through the Bible. The uh, analogy that I use when I teach Mary Rowlandson's narrative in that early American literature survey is to um, one of the um, communicators in the old Star Trek show. I don't really know the, the next generation well enough to comment on it, but in the old one, um, they would have those little, almost like cell phone devices that they, if they lost it, they would be out of touch with the mothership, with the enterprise. Um, but if they you know, found it again, um, when they were visiting a, some unknown planet, um, they would be back in touch with the enterprise. And for her, um, for Mary Rowlandson, the Bible served that function in terms of communicating with God. So God would direct her to um, specific passages, and these were the literacy events that she describes in the um, in her narrative, where she um, picks up the Bible. She's undergoing some you know particular um, trial. Picks up the Bible, um, opens it up seemingly at random, and comes across a verse that speaks directly to her in that moment. Um, and for her, that's a multilateral communication event, um, or the other term that I used um, is um, um, a metaphysical communication event, um, which is to say it's a communication between the divine and, and, the, and the human in that moment. Uh, but Mary Rowlandson isn't the only one to cite the Bible. Also, some um, Christian Indians um, cite the Bible. Um, these are the so-called praying Indians. And um, and so that gets factored into the heteroglossia as well, um, that uh, that Christian Indians are um, using some of the same rhetoric that she uses. So in terms of the temporal antitypes, this is the second part of the question, um, temporal antitypes, antitypes of the Old Testament Jews. Uh, this was a bit of um, jargon um, that I couldn't really avoid in this book um, in writing about Mary Rowlandson's narrative um, because she was very invested in that um, system of um, biblical interpretation called typology um, where uh, she was um, not only understanding the experiences of um, sort of her community in relation to the Bible stories of the Old Testament, um, but really um, having a very personal connection to this kind of correspondence between the Old Testament Jews and the New England colonists. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a correspondence that's expressed in um, some of the titles of New England, um, you know, well-known New England works like New England Canaan um, or um, uh, John Cotton's sermon, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the sermon, um, but where he he talks about um, he he talks about uh, New England as being the new Israel. Um, the same thing with John Winthrop's famous "City Upon a Hill" sermon. That's really the classic illustration of typology. Um, when he calls New England a city upon a hill, he's saying that uh, the um, New England colony is the temporal antitype, meaning the um, 
the sort of the parallel that's unfolding in historical time um, to the founding of Jerusalem, um, not only by the uh, by the Jews in their um, you know in ancient Israel, um, but also the New Jerusalem that is um, a, a key to the um, you know the the coming of the millennium. So this future reiteration of Jerusalem. So I hope that um, I hope that's not like o- overly complex for that moment. But part of what happened, part of what was happening in um, in New England during this moment in King Philip's War um, was that this this correspondence was being kind of animated or actualized um, by the attacks of the uh, you know of the um, Native Americans in, the, in New England. Um, these heathen enemies who are compared. Um, kind of in an abstract way in John Winthrop's sermon. Um, so if they're founding the new Israel in, um, you know, in, in Canaan, um, then therefore the inhabitants of this um, territory must be like the, um, must be analogous to the Canaanites. Um, but at King Philip's war, um, when the settlements were seemingly being overrun by the neighboring Indians, you had uh, a, a little bit, Two parallel reenactment of the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, um, which is sort of the main theme of a lot of the Old Testament stories. Um, the the temple was built and it was destroyed, um, and here that's what's happening in New England in that moment. Uh, I, I think there's one more piece to the question, um, which was about her the parallel to her sister's death. So right in that raid in, in Lancaster, right at the onset of her captivity, um, her sister um, was killed, um, her sister Elizabeth Curley. Um, and she um, uses that moment where she talks about her sister dying to give like a little bit of a backstory on her sister, um, which is that her sister underwent a conversion. Of course, she was already Christian, but she was, um, you know, in a, in a sense, in you know, reborn or converted as an adult through her reading of scripture, a passage that she had read many, many times. Um, she, you know, she read again at this particular moment and she felt um, the Holy Spirit working through her in that moment to give her an understanding of it that she had never had before. And from that on, um, you know, she, and from that moment she um, was saved. Um, she um, belonged to the elect. Um, for Mary Rowlandson, she had a much more challenging um you know, trial in a sense, um, as as a captive, um, but what she's experiencing through her captivity is, uh, um, you know, k- kind of a, an enactment of that kind of conversion process that's taking place um, in in Indian country, um, where the um, she's getting to live within this typological landscape and experience scripture um, as a reader in that uh, you know in that moment and undergo. A kind of uh, a parallel to the, this um, spiritual conversion through her physical redemption from captivity. So, on that note, how did readers receive Rollinson's actualization of Scripture across removed places as typifications of their own precarious spiritual states, albeit at a reader's remove, while abhorring the quote offensive discoursal pretensions of praying Indians? including James Printer. How did the preface narrator, if you can address this, also contribute to layers of narration? Sure. Uh, the, um, you know, the first part of the question is that, uh, you know, I, I don't really know how readers, um, you know, 
about the reception of Rowlandson by readers. We can only speculate um, from, you know, from what the the um, narrator or author of the preface um, wrote, um, and uh, you know, certainly there's some instances of later day readers, but commenting on Rowlandson. But um, you know, in that moment in the 1680s, what did they think? Um, we can only speculate on the basis of reading practices, uh, but we can also see um, how Rowlandson was presented to be read, uh, you know, the work that the narrative was supposed to do. Uh, and really, um, you know, she was almost like a, um, you know, a canary in the coal mine who was able to, you know, report on what she was undergoing. Um, you know, there she was in captivity in what I describe as this allegorical landscape, um, you know, the actual literal captive of these, um, uh, you know, allegorical parallels to the Babylonians, um, reading the Bible um, within this, um, you know, within this context and reporting on her reading experiences. Uh, and that's what the author of the preface, who, um, it was authored anom anonymously, um, it was just signed um, per amicam or from a friend in Latin, um, but he's widely identified as Increase Mather, the, um, the Puritan divine. Um, but that's what he prescribed. He said um, to the reader, um, read, peruse, ponder this narrative, um, and from it get some understanding of like the kind of work that scripture could do. Um, so she was, um, as, as somebody who was so um, visibly afflicted, um, she was in a privileged vantage point as a reader of scripture, whereas those readers at the reader's remove, um, as I call it, um, don't get the that kind of interpretive context of being in that uh, that sort of literal affliction necessarily, but they could imagine what it's like and therefore learn um, the kind of uh, correct affect um, for reading. Um, and hopefully scripture can do the same kind of work with them um, that it did um, with Mary Rowlandson. Um, but that's in contrast to uh, her, uh, her description of reading scripture and really feeling it in her heart is very much in contrast to her description of the, um, of the praying Indians and their, um, their use of scripture. Um, so that when I'm talking about the offensive discursal pretensions, um, there, um, I'm using another sociological, uh, another concept that I buy from, um, the sociology of literature, li sociology of literacy, um, which is the idea of the discourse community. Um, and it, it's as, as sort of self-evident as it sounds, it's a, it's a community that, um, is kind of formed or shaped, um, through, um, participation in a discourse, uh, I use this concept a lot in my teaching as well. It helps students to think about um, what we're doing in the classroom where we're kind of teaching, um, you know, for example, um, when I teach my students how to use the um, MLA or Modern Language Association style, I tell them it's not important that you learn how to, um, you know, punctuate um, these, you know, punctuate your citations with, um, you know, parentheses and the page numbers and comma or no comma, these, uh, these conventions that are not really meaningful in themselves, um, but when you do it correctly, what it does is it signals your discursal expertise, your ability to participate in this discourse community um, formed by um, yeah, academic literary, uh, literary scholars in the case of the MLA, um, but it's the same with any other style sheet. 
So one way of thinking about it is that Mary Rowlandson, with her um, proficiency with scripture, uh, you know, that's illustrated as a captive and as an author, um, is exhibiting her um, her participation at the very center of the discourse community as a minister's wife. Um, but when she cites um, praying Indians citing scripture, um, she is sort of deliberately exhibiting them as being pretenders to participating in this discourse community. It's like they're misplacing their commas um, or um, you know, including the author's name when they shouldn't um, and showing that they really don't get it, um, particularly because the kind of uses of scripture um, she attributes to them are, are hypocritical. They're not heartfelt. Um, they're, they're sort of flippant and, and even blasphemous. Your book examines inhibited singing in 18th century captivity narratives, as well as uninhibited singing in popular histories and Jesuit Per Isaac Jogis's captivity account. In this context, how did the first four verses of Psalm 137 generate experiential parallels to the opposition between a, quote, a opposition between a detested Babylon and longed for Zion? Also, how did James Printer frame Babylonian captivity, which you've already alluded to, and the 1658 Book of Psalms and 1663 Bible? All right, so um, that's a that's a question that pertains to my my second chapter, um, which is titled Psalm 137 as a site of encounter. Uh, I think that the psalm uh, will probably be. Uh, maybe not immediately recognizable on the basis of the number, but still very um, familiar to our, our audience. Uh, so I'm going to read the first four lines, which are the most um, you know, most recognizable of those. Uh, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wanted that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So as I said, those, that's uh, verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 137. Um, and you know, so there's so much um, popular music um, uh, that uh, especially uh, um, uses that first line, by the rivers of Babylon. Um, protest songs and 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 so on uh so it's it's a song it's a psalm it's probably the best known of the uh of the uh best known psalm in the book of psalms um that's psalm 137 um and it is you know from the 20th and 21st century um but also in the early modern period it was probably the the most cited of the psalms um and the most adapted of the psalms so the that idea of um inhibited singing uh, that inhibition is voiced in the, in line four of the psalm that I just read. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Uh, and also in the second verse, we hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. So what the psalm is depicting is the Jewish captives in Babylon um, and their captors asked them to sing songs of Zion. Sing, they required of us songs of mirth. And it's not exactly clear what happens or what's um, supposedly happening in the story um, of the psalm, but um, 
what the, what it's suggesting is that they kind of refused to sing those songs. They hang their harps upon the willow tree, um, and they said rhetorically, how could we possibly do this to sing the Lord's song in this strange context? So as I've described, the uh, these 17th century captivities, like Mary Rowlandson's, um, and, you know, but... Um, uh, you know, it's a dynamic that carried into the 18th century and beyond. Were like recapitulations of the sacking of the temple and the uh, and uh, the carrying away of the Jewish captives into Babylon. Um, so there, the captives were, and uh, they're evoking this song. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Uh, it's a psalm that got, as I suggested, uh, it was very widely adapted. Um, in um, in early modern uh, Europe uh, and in the, and in the colonies, but I say that there's a real difference between those contexts. So, for example, um, one of the instances that I've um, read about is um, the uh, um, Spanish mystic Saint John of the Cross. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a version of the psalm or an adaptation of it as a poem while he was in prison. Um, he was like a. Um, this was uh, you know during the during the Counter Reformation, um, so in that instance he's suggesting this analogy between the Jewish captives in Babylon and him in his in his prison. Um, the outside world or freedom is Zion, and the prison is Babylon. Um, the um, the Portuguese. Um, epic historian Luis de Camoe, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, he wrote an adaptation of the Psalm 137, um, where he's citing some of the same verses that I just read um, when he was uh, in exile from Portugal, or at least feeling estranged from Portugal um, in, in the, the colonies in Asia. Um, so in that instance, Portugal is Zion, and um, Babylon is representative of his exile. But what was happening with the uh, Christian captives in the um, in the New World, or you know, especially in the American, um, you know, what is now the American Northeast, um, was a more precise parallel to the elements of the Psalm. Um, I focus um, one of the instances that I write about is when Mary Rowlandson is carried across the Connecticut River on a canoe, um, and she sits down among the um, her captors as she describes it, and she starts to cry for the first time. So there she is um, sitting on a riverbank and crying, um, and it's a very close recapitulation of that um, of that first verse by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Um, she's sitting upon from her point of, or sitting among from her point of view, um, sort of these um, literal heathen captors like the Babylonians and, and crying among them. Uh, but then it kind of goes off script because one of them, uh, one of her captors asks her why um, she was crying and they actually started to comfort her um, instead of acting the part of the Babylonians by, by mocking her. Um, but other captivity narratives um, describe how uh, the um, captors actually asked the captives to sing songs, uh, as in that uh, that third verse, for they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And according to the captivity narratives, um, a good number of, um, of Christian captives were required to sing songs in captivity. Uh, and that's where uh, 
what, what I think of as the ethno-historical circumstances play in, um, because we can find a lot of documentation for this practice of requiring captives to sing. Um, in, in my understanding, um, drawn from um, instances in the Jesuit relations and the captivity narratives themselves, um, the, the singing was a, a way of, um, it was like a spirit contest. Um, so by asking the captives to sing, they were um, e- either um, sort of, uh, you know, challenging them to show that they had the spirit to um, resist the captivity as, as some of the, um, you know, as some of their Native American captives did, or um, just sort of humiliating them, um, their, their captives. Um, so we have this ethno-historical attestation of um, the practice of asking captives to sing, um, and then we have the allegory of the psalm. Uh, so does that, does that answer your question? Uh, yes. Um, I think there was another part to it, though. Um, well, about um, Isaac Jogues' captivity account, right? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Isaac Jogue, um, as a captive um, among Mohawks, uh, he uh, actually, you know, describes actually singing the the psalm. Um, and part of what he was doing there um, was uh, re um, restaging this dichotomy between Zion and Babylon. Um, he went out and he constructed these um, retreats. Uh, these spiritual retreats, and and there he's he's emulating the practices of um, or the uh, the Jesuit exercises prescribed by the founder um, Ignatius de, Lo- de Loyola. So he was creating, um, he could say, like the sort of like li- little little sacred space um, within the um, the Babylon of the woods and the Mohawks' um, hunting camp and their um, you know dietary and sexual practices and everything that um, for him typified Babylon. Um, and in those safe spaces, he was singing um, the the Psalm of Zion um, or the Songs of Zion, um, Psalm one thirty seven. Um, and, um, you know, sort of like placing himself in heaven or transcending um, his circumstances of captivity. Um, so for, for him, um, Zion was a representation of heaven um, and, uh, you know, in his worldly circumstances that were epitomized by, those, by that captivity among Mohawks, he was um, sort of always already in Babylon. In novels ballads, and narratives. How and why did verses 8 to 9 of Psalm 137 and the, quote, dashing out of children's brains result in allegorical implications to massacres that in turn revealed the, quote, complexity, volatility, and indeterminacy of the interaction between scripture and colonial encounters? The verses 8 and 9 are often kind of left out or forgotten from the psalm. All of that, uh, you know, the... uh, protest music um, the by the Rivers of Babylon songs, uh, they don't get as far as verses 8 and 9. And some of the adaptations actually, like, you know, poetic adaptations or even translations of the psalm leave it out entirely um, because they're, they're quite offensive. Uh, so this is the way verses 8 and 9 read. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones upon against the stones. So what it's describing is kind of like sacred vengeance um, for the treatment of um, the Jewish children by the Babylonians. 
just as the Babylonians dashed the dashed out the brains of our children, um, you know, sometime in the future, um, our warriors are going to be happy to to repay you in kind by dashing out your children's brains. So it's one of the um, most graphic instances in the um, in the Bible of infanticide, and it's um, you know it's it's very much in a kind of an old Old Testament code of justice um, where uh, you know that you're repaid in kind, um, an eye for an eye, um, uh, you know, uh, justice, um, as opposed to the New Testament where um, you know presumably it'd be much more about forgiveness, right? Um, so it uh, those verses um, didn't have much of a um, you know there wasn't much room for them in, in Christian theology um, in in a sense. So what intrigued me was that captivity narratives, um, even captivity narratives that are citing one thirty Psalm one thirty seven, um, which is maybe the the most um, alluded to part of the Bible. Um, uh, in, in, uh, in captivity narratives, or at least one of them, um, would also um, feature infanticide in, in a sense that was um, quite comparable to the psalm. Um, uh, so uh, in Mary Rowlandson, Elizabeth Hansen, um, uh, John Williams to an extent, um, all of these narratives feature the, um, the slaughter of English children. Um, and on the one hand, we can think it's sort of Propaganda. Um, it certainly was featuring these representations of Indians dashing out the brains of of infants against, usually against trees. Um, was certainly something that would um, be incendiary and and contribute to the um, vilification of the Native Americans. Um, but it may also have re- reflected a, an actual practice. And um, Mary, Elizabeth Hansen, um, her her captivity narrative is an interesting instance because. She actually suggests that she doesn't sound that um, aggrieved about the, the treatment of her um, of these infants. Um, instead, she says that you know they were being too loud. Um, you know the Indians, you know, did this in order to silence them, um, in order to make their escape, or, or something along those lines. Um, so, um, on the one hand, a terrible atrocity. On the other hand, you know, possibly a, a, a practice of war. Um, but all in these narratives that are alluding to the psalm without specifically alluding to those lines. Um, but in fictional accounts of captivity, um, the illusions are much more um, explicit and, and deliberate. Um, maybe the best-known one is in the um, account of the um, uh, attack on, on Fort William Henry, um, or the Fort William Henry massacre, as, as it was called, in James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans, um, in which uh, one, one of the um, Iroquois warriors um, dashes out a children's brains against the stones. Unlike in the 17th century captivity narratives, in the fictional account, it's almost always against stone, um, which to me is a signal that they're um, maybe deliberately or maybe um, you know sort of unconsciously picking up on um, what I almost think of as a meme that's emerging from biblical rhetoric, this dashing out of little ones against the stones. Uh, in some of the um, historical or um, you know non-fictional accounts of the Fort William Henry massacre, um, they also have mentions of this dashing out of children's brains against the stones. Um, so, uh, for me, um, it's uh, referring to the psalm, um, you know, without necessarily explicitly doing so. Um, 
the one instance where I bring up that idea of indeterminacy is from uh, a traditional account that gets uh, recorded in um, the annals of, um, I'm sorry, um, Waddell's Annals of Augusta County. So it's kind of like a, a, a local history um, in which this Mrs. Gilmore, who's captured during the Seven Years' War as well, um, describes um, being carried underneath these um, uh, um, atrocities, these uh, these children who'd been um, who'd been killed. Um, she's made to pass under them as kind of like a, a, a trial against her. Um, and then she sings the psalm out loud, and she doesn't say anything about the words that she sang. Um, but we can imagine that she has vengeance on her mind. And um, and what I speculate about in the chapter is like kind of her emotional affect as she sang verses eight and nine. Um, but then I point out we can never actually know what happened, whether the account is influenced by the psalm or whether her experience was influenced by the psalm um, or neither, um, you know, whether she actually passed underneath um, or was exposed to these atrocities or whether she made them up as a way of vilific vilifying the um, the Native Americans. Uh, the point is, is that there's so many contingencies. There's the actual ethno-historical context, um, which we can speculate about and make some, you know, cross-referential cross um, uh, speculations and research, um, but we can never really know. Um, and then there's the uh, the um, influence of the um, the psalm or the Bible or literature in general on the discourse um, as opposed to its influence on the story. Um, so part of what I'm doing in this book is, is trying to make informed speculations about what might have been happening um, as opposed to doing uh, something that's maybe more characteristic of literary scholars, which is saying like, well, we don't know, so I'm going to focus only on the representations. How and why did the captivity account by Jesuit Père Isaac Jogues, as well as the 1647 narrative by Lalamont, allegorize Jogues' uh, spiritual, quote, spiritual re repatriation to Zion? In your response, please discuss one or all of the following. Parallels to Protocols of the Order's Founder, Assimilation to Types and Martyrdom, the Epistle of Paul, and paradox Paradoxical Dreams as well as Visions. Well, I, I suggest that um, that Isaac Jogue, um, who um, was captured to captured by Mohawks um, as well, um, that he had a, sort of like a, a series of templates um, for his captivity, um, and uh, one of one of the authors of his um, the accounts of his captivity um, was uh, Jerome de Laumont, um, the the Jesuit superior. Um, but he also wrote a letter, um, uh, Jogues wrote a long letter and, and several shorter ones from captivity. So there's sort of multiple sources on, on what Jogues was experiencing. Uh, but certainly one of, one of his uh, inspirations as a captive um, would be the Jesuit founder, Ignatius de Loyola, who um, describes his own suffering and his process of self-abnegation on this kind of ultimate um, su subjection of his self to his experience. Uh, which which ends up being sort of par paradoxical, um, which is that he's supposed to eliminate all self-interest, but um, in a way, like to be more selfless than anybody. So uh, it's um, it, it's kind of like a, a flattening of ego to the point where he has to be able to claim to have um, 
you know, to warrant admission to heaven on the basis of his lack of ego. Um, that's the, that's the paradox that I see. So Isaac Jogue, excuse me, um, Ignatius de Loyola uh, is the one who um, laid out that um, that protocol for entering into spiritual retreats, um, which as a, a, as I've described, um, Isaac Jogue did, um, you know, ev- even as a captive. Um, but in terms of that suffering, his um, he was also emulating the stories of um, of, uh, of Christian martyrs of the saints, um, and uh, you know what he was doing as a captive was kind of um, seeking his own martyrdom um, without being too egotistical in doing so. Uh, you know he had um, some companions die, and he considered them um, to be to be martyrs. Uh, and he kept asking, in a sense, like, "Why not me? What um, what have I done not to deserve this? Um, to um, you know, to also be uh, tortured and ultimately killed um, by the Iroquois." He kept getting tortured in his description, and and it's really a harrowing thing um, to read. It's um, one of the sources um, for the novel and the film Black Robe, if if you're familiar with it. Uh, yeah, you know, he describes um, you know getting his nails torn out and losing losing a finger, um, and or more more than one, um, losing the thumb on his left hand, if I remember right. Um, but in yeah, I read the book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I and I've uh, taught black robe with students, and it's pretty, um, you know, it's pretty rough going for them. Um, uh, and we've also read um, Isaac Shaw's captivity narrative, and it really uh, it really makes you wince quite a lot as as you're reading through it. Um, one of the instances he's he describes um, he's um, you know he's just tied up. Um, he's got these leather thongs that are um, you know biting into his wrists because they're so tight, and he makes um, what he later sees as a, or immediately sees as an error in, in asking his captors to loosen his bonds, and, and they scoff at him, and they actually make them tighter and more painful, um, and that it prompts this realization like, you know, who am I to ask for relief from suffering? You know, I'm supposed to be suffering, uh, and, you know, my suffering is as nothing compared to what Jesus endured in getting those nails um, put through his um, put through his hands. So, uh, getting his bonds tightened instead of loosened actually sort of like brings him closer to Jesus and and brings him you know sort of further into identification um, with Jesus and the Passion um, and with those saints and and with the founder of his sect um, Ignatius de Loyola uh, and and so that's what um, assimilation to types is really about um, that's a a term that I'm um, borrowing um, from the historian Alan Greer uh, who who writes about the Jesuit martyrs and also about uh, get, uh, but the assimilation to types is in distinction to what the Puritans were um, were doing, where they would certainly identify with Jesus to an extent, but they wouldn't go so far as to um, sort of seek martyrdom in captivity. Rather, they were seeking a literal redemption from captivity. Um, but what Isaac Jogue was uh, hoping for was a spiritual, re- an immediate spiritual redemption um, by being um, dispatched um in the midst of his suffering, so that he would be killed and ascend directly to heaven. Uh, that's what the spiritual repatriation to Zion um, was about. Assimilation to types means instead of um, instead of kind of a, 
a simile type of comparison. Like what I'm going through is like what Jesus is going through. It was more of a metaphor, um, like a real collapse between that distinction between him um, and the saints and the founder um, and uh, uh, you know, and uh, the um, and the savior, um, so that he would be uh, identified to the point where he would actually die and, and ascend to heaven. Um, Lalamont, in his um, account of Isaac Jogue, compares him to Saint Paul, the the first um, and uh, kind of like the arch uh, missionary. Uh, and um, Jogue um, makes that makes that comparison as well. Uh, one of the things that Jogue, that Saint Paul do, does, and this is the um, the bit of Bible that that Jogue has with him, is the Epistle of Saint Paul to the Hebrews. Um, one of the things that he does is to write epistles that's you know the characteristic of saint paul and jog emulates that as well um through writing these accounts um of his captivity of his experiencing experiencing experiences as he's undergoing it and uh, and sending them um by whatever means he can have um back to the colonies um he gives them to warriors to try to, to take back and to um put on these stakes by the river um and he gives it to um uh, um, you know, prisoners who are being um, repatriated and so on. So he writes all of these letters, and a few of them actually do make it back. So even the literacy practices were part of his identification with these spiritual types. In his 18th century captivity narrative and letters, how and why did Reverend John Williams's references to Genesis 32, a piece, quote, piece of Bible, concerns about the tenuousness of Puritanism in Deerfield survivors, and critical assessments of Jesuit adherence to written discourse, one or all of those, contribute to his narrative of redemption, at, even at the cost of his daughter and unredeemed captives. Well, the um, citations from uh, Genesis 32 occur during uh, a pr- what um, Williams describes as a, as a prayer meeting um, before the 1704 raid on, on Deerfield, Massachusetts, in which he, he was captured along with um, you know, most, of, most of his congregation. He was the minister for the Deerfield congregation. And uh, it, uh, it acts as almost like a prologue, um, his description of this prayer meeting. It acts as a prologue to the account of the captivity, which follows. Um, there were two passages that he cited from Gen- one in the morning prayer meeting and one in the uh, afternoon prayer meeting. So this was a day of prayer that they were uh, staging as a kind of an intervention into their situation. So Genesis 32 verses 10 through 11 um, is uh, one where the um, the Old Testament Jews were pleading for mercy. Um, they were about to get attacked by uh, Esau. Um, and uh, and Esau's army, and they were saying, you know, God, you know, help us out in this situation. Esau and four hundred men with them is what's described in, in Genesis thirty-two. Um, and at this moment, there were um, not necessarily, um, you know, beknownst to the um, to the Deerfield um, community, but they knew that they were like in a war situation. Um, but while they were having this prayer meeting, there were three hundred Indians and French, um, a war party approaching. Deerfield, and uh, in um, sort of revisiting this plea for mercy, they were saying like, okay, here's one thing that could happen. God could help us out so that we don't get attacked and destroyed. Um, But then the alternative, um, the afternoon prayer meeting um, was um, 
the the parallel was Jacob's uh, wrestling match um, with the angel, in which uh, Jacob, um, who's about to be renamed Israel, uh, um, says that he will not let the angel go unless um, unless he receives a blessing first. You know, in that, in that very famous biblical passage. So that's the other way things could go. Okay, maybe God's not going to spare them from getting attacked by the uh, by the Indians and the French, um, but maybe instead God will strengthen them to hold on, um, to maintain their faith until they receive a blessing um, while they're captive. Um, so the wrestling match is kind of a, a metaphor for the or an allegory for the captivity. Uh, so uh, like Mary Rowlandson. Um, uh, John Williams um, received a piece of a Bible, um, or she she received a whole one, but he received one that was kind of um, you know broken up, I guess, um, during his captivity, and he used it in the same way as a way of communicating with God, um, except with the um, except his literacy events that he describes were were um, primarily like collective um, literacy events, these these prayer meetings that he held as a minister. Um, but it allowed them to be um, in communication with God um, while they were captives among the Native Americans. Um, once he um, was brought up to Canada and delivered to the Jesuits, he really stops describing these kinds of literacy events. Um, he doesn't cite the Bible as much, um, or he doesn't recount reading the Bible as a captive, um, but instead he gets really um, mired in, in uh doctrinal controversies with the Jesuits, and he keeps talking about their um, sort of communicative malfeasance, um, their their abuse of forms of communication. Uh, it was um, partly uh, a complaint about their written discourse, where he um, engaged in that uh, characteristic uh, contrast between Puritan plain style, um, you know, we read things as they are, and we write um, things in order to be uh, you know, have maximal clarity um, with um, Jesuit scholasticism um, or, uh, you know, this obfuscatory um, Latinate way of writing that they attributed to Jesuits. Um, but it was also um, the practice of mediation um, where the, the Jesuits um, wouldn't allow the um, the English prisoners to have direct access to the Bible or, or, um, or to... Um, or to their minister. Instead, they would always um, communicate on behalf of God or um, John Williams. His greatest fear was that um, they would tell his, um, you know, his parishioners that uh, I guess that's the wrong word, um, but his um, his congregants that he had converted to Catholicism. There were all of these reports of conversions that he was constantly fighting against. And what if they came to believe that he had? converted, um, then, you know, maybe the whole community might be lost. So he, he voices that fear throughout his captivity that the Jesuits' practice of mediation is going to kind of corrupt um, his, um, his uh, dispersed flock of, um, of Christians. Um, but some of the um, captives who were kind of like at the fur- furthest edges of that dispersal um, included his daughter Eunice, who was seven years old at the time of the Deerfield Raid. Um, and was specifically marked for adoption. Um, so she was never um, a prisoner of the French. She was a prisoner of the um, Mohawks in, in Ganawaka, uh, the Christian Mohawks. And um, she had 
uh, as especially as a girl, she had had a liter- literacy education that was not as complete as she might have um, if she was a boy. Um, so she lost access to the Bible and even, you know, sort of memory of um, the her catechism, um, you know, certainly to writing, eventually to the English language. Um, and as such, she was susceptible to a conversion um, to Catholicism, which was kind of a worst case scenario for, um, you know, in Williams's point of view. So his uh, his mission as a minister was to sort of stay in touch as to the best as he could with his congregants and to keep them in the faith, to keep them holding on um, as Jacob did to the angel until they got the blessing. Um, but Eunice's ties were really too weak from his point of view to, um, you know, to sustain that kind of pressure. Now, in the context of the Iroquois Jesuit Catholic mission village of Danawaka, why did hagiographers of Gatheri Dagawita contend that she applied the, quote, logic of requickening to her baptism, advancing the allegorical regeneration of Catherine of Siena through, quote, action and experience? Also, how did she uh, associate her first name, uh, Gatheri, with baptism? And then her her and then what what uh, what happened to her last name Dagawita? Right, um, great great questions. And um, in Ganawaka, um, you know, which is the sort of the setting for um, for my my fourth chapter. Um, it's the it's the town um, that Gatari Dagawita um, migrated to, uh, and I'm I'm not pronouncing it quite correctly, but I do my best. Um, and Marguerite Kanensen Howie uh, kind of came of age in uh, Marguerite Kanensen Howie was the name that was um, that uh, Eunice Williams, um, you know, sort of lived and, and died as. Uh, what um, the early accounts of, of Gary de, de Gaguita, um were um, uh, composed by the French Jesuits um, Pierre Cholinec and Claude Chaustier. And uh, so those are um, the hagiographers that I refer to um, in Allegories of Encounter. Um, I don't think they entirely recognize that logic of requickening, um, but requickening is a, is a, a term um, that uh, ethnographers have used to describe the, um, I, I guess, the not just the naming ritual, but the conceptual underpinnings of, of naming um, in, um, in Iroquoian peoples. Um, which is and and what that logic is is that when you take a new name um, when you're given a name at birth or in adolescence you're actually um, taking on or re-inhabiting an existing persona um, so it's quite different from Christian baptism even though um, they um, these rituals occupy um, kind of parallel um, places in in the Christian and, and Iroquoian cultures uh, when um, somebody's given a baptismal name uh, or you know this was more the early modern practice the understanding was that th- there was a relationship being um, invoked um, between that individual and, and his or her patron saint um, the, the saint would be looking over them um, the paint the saint would provide an inspiration for how they might live their lives um, whereas um, in under requickening um, the instead of uh, like a sort of a layer being added to the individual, the individual is 
inhabiting a new persona entirely through the taking on of that name. Uh, so my speculation about what would um, what was happening um, for uh, Gatari, which is the a Mohawk pronunciation of um, of Catherine, um, and incidentally, I just wanted to. Um, I acknowledge um, the help of the Mohawk linguist Roy, the late Roy Wright, um, with uh, with thinking through this chapter and also with the with the pronunciations that I'm struggling with right now. Um, uh, but Catherine and and um, and uh, Gatari are, are um, you know it, it's like uh, it's analogous to the um, different pronunciations of Catherine in English and French, um, Catherine and uh, um, Catherine. Um, and uh, so Gatari um, in Mohawk would be equivalent to Catherine. Anyway, um, Catherine um, was named, her patron saint through baptism was Catherine of Siena. Um, and a lot of, uh, a lot of conver- Native American converts received the name Catherine, uh, but most of them didn't, or hardly any of them, um, emulated um, their patron saint to the extent that uh, Gatari Tecacuita did. Uh, uh, just like Catherine of Siena or Catherine of Siena's story, um, Gatari um, uh, was um, you know, pressured to marry. Um, she refused to marry and instead took a vow of chastity to, um, uh, you know, and uh, that, that vow is a marital vow um, to Jesus instead of to um, a Mohawk husband. Um, she, um, just like Catherine, um, she practiced excuse me, just like St. Catherine, the, um, the 14th century saint, um, Gatari practiced um, severe um, sort of um, penance rituals, um, you know, uh, abstinence and, and, and penance. Um, so there was all these parallels between the lives of the Mohawk saint, Gatari uh, Tegawitha, and the um, medieval Italian saint, um, Catherine of Siena. Uh, what um, was, scholars have um, have supposed is that this parallel influenced the composition of the hagiographic accounts, um, which is to say that Claude Chostier and Pierre Cholinac were, in, of course, um, you know, intensely familiar with the story of Catherine of, of Siena, and therefore they modeled the um, their accounts of Catherine Teca, of Gatari Tecacuita after the story of Catherine of Siena, and what I'm proposing is instead that um, Gatari um, heard the story of um, Catherine of Siena, um, that she was very curious about it as the hagiographies attest, um, and that she purposefully emulated um, her um, her namesake, uh, Catherine of Siena. Um, so that's, uh, um, again, that story-discourse distinction. Uh, I'm, I'm supposing that the story, I guess you could say the discourse of Catherine of Siena um, the narrative of the saint's life influenced the story of Gatari Tecacuita that she uh, modeled herself after the um, after her namesake, um, and that the um, the hagiographic accounts that emerged from that relationship um, were um, shaped um, by Gatari's story and not simply by um, the Jesuit rhetoric. Uh, I don't know that. Um, Gatari um, identified with the name uh, Degakwitha at all. Um, I, I cite uh, these instances of um, it's from a slightly different context um, uh, among Abenaki convert, converts, um, where um, uh, the 
Jesuit uh, Jacques Bijot um, explains that they didn't want to hear their Native American names anymore, um, that they just wanted to be to go by the Christian names, but they had to use the Christian names the Jesuits did in order to differentiate between, um, for example, all of the different um, gatharis in the community. Um, you know, sort of like in the same way that a school teacher will, um, you know, refer to uh, Michael B and Michael K in the classroom to differentiate. Um, but according to um, Bijot, the, um, these new converts um, didn't go by those names anymore. Those names had been replaced um, by their Christian names. And I, and I speculate that uh, Gatari um, didn't think of herself as, um, it's, as de Gacuita when she adopted the name Gatari. Can you elucidate allegorical parallels between the uh, Jesuit rebaptism of Eunice as Marguerite with narratives of the life of Margaret of Antioch? In addition, how how and why did Pierre Cholinek's account of Gateri the Gawita um, and her choice of a divine spouse, along with his account of Marguerite's union with a Mohawk warrior, Fulfill the former's Christian name and the latter's Mohawk one. So, like um, like Gatari or Catherine, um, Marguerite was not an uncommon name for um, you know for new converts. Uh, but um, I, I speculate that there's something more going on um, with the Jesuits' choice to rebaptize um, uh, Eunice Williams as as Marguerite, um, which was sort of the. Um, the Christian name that she received um, at the same time that she was, um, or maybe not the same time, um, but uh, as a as a child, she was also received a a Mohawk name, um, which is um, you know, it's written out as Wangote. I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced entirely. Um, but so she got she received two new names, and she lost the name Eunice. Uh, Wangote um, is translated um, by. Um, or at least the translation that uh, John Demos's book um, offers, and also um, uh, Evan Heifele and Kevin Sweeney's book about the um, 1704 captives, um, it, it means something like she was placed as a person. Um, and I think that Marguerite has had a similar um, connotation. Um, but Marguerite of Antioch, the um, uh, namesake for Marguerite Ganenstenhawi, was... Uh, a medieval saint um, from earlier than Catherine of Siena, uh, who was the daughter of a heresiarch, um, which is the, the word that gets used in the, the Golden Legend, um, which is the, the source book for these medieval saint stories, um, or for this set of medieval saint stories, um, who was taken away by a nurse and, and converted and baptized against her father's will. So it's really a striking parallel to the circumstances of, of Eunice Williams, who um, was also taken away um, from her, separated, forcibly separated from her father, um, who was also a heresiarch or the founder of a heretical sect from the point of view of the Jesuit Catholics um, and uh, converted um, to what the Jesuits saw as the true Christianity and baptized against her father's will. Uh, I, I think that the Jesuits um, may have um, you know, intended more of a deliberate illusion or at least felt... Um, the appropriateness of the name Marguerite. As the story of um, Marguerite Antioch, um, or Margaret of Antioch um, continues, um, she ends up being swallowed by a dragon and then fighting her way out with a sword and, um, you know, putting her foot on the dragon's neck. So it takes this turn towards, um, I, you know, I guess like 
fantasy allegory um, that obviously um, you know couldn't be emulated in real life. Uh, but I think that the the setup for the story is what's emulated, and then um, the that spiritual fighting of the dragon um, takes out uh, it. Uh, it plays out figuratively um, in the rest of the story of Eunice Williams, who um, you know who becomes a Catholic, um, but not Catholic in the same. Um, I guess you could say to the same degree as Gatari Tekakwitha, um, which is to say that she is um, if, if Tekakwitha. Um, is uh, kind of joining a religious order um, somewhat against the will of her um, of her converters. Uh, you know, she went she went farther than the missionaries. Um, uh, you know, sort of would have would have wanted her to in a sense. Uh, the, as the Mohawk um, Catholic community w- was progressing, it was becoming um, more of a separate. Um, uh, more of a seven separate religious um, cultural community um, from the Jesuits um, by the time in the 18th century that um, uh, Marguerite uh, Marguerite um, Kenneson Howie or Eunice Williams joined it, uh, and so she became a Mohawk Catholic um, by marrying a Mohawk Catholic man um, and really becoming a member of that community as. as is expressed by her um, adult name, Ganenstan Howie, um, which is translated as she brings in corn. Um, in other words, she becomes kind of a functional member of this community. Um, I refer in, in this chapter to Ar- Arnold van Gennep, um, the French um, eth- ethnologist's um, classic book, The Rites of Passage, uh, where he describes um, rites of separation and rites of incorporation. Um, uh, Gararitekakwitha, um, by choosing to marry Jesus, to ch- by taking a vow of chastity, um, is fulfilling her name of Gatari um, and becoming, um, uh, assimilating to the type of uh, Catherine of Siena, who also takes a vow of chastity. Um, whereas uh, Marguerite Kanenstan Howie, um, by marrying a Mohawk warrior and becoming, um, you know, living out a really long life um, in, in this community, um, dying as, uh, as Marguerite Gnenstein Howie, um, becomes fully incorporated um, through her marriage um, and fulfills her name of Gnenstein Howie. Please briefly address uh, the talking book, execution, and royal meeting scenes in John Marant's 1785 narrative. In your response, please also address the significance of one or all of the following. Evangelical language ideology, Great Awakening emotional pitch, vocalization of hymns, similar colonial accounts, and uh, Cherokee ethno-history, as well as those accusations of magical literacy. Great. Um, John Morant's narrative, um, a narrative of the Lord's wonderful dealings with John Morant, a black, which is published in 1785, uh, is um, a narrative that's received a lot of attention in in recent decades, and really it was sort of brought into the spotlight um, by the African American or African Americanist um, literary scholar um, Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, in his book *The Signifying Monkey*, uh, and and especially in a very famous chapter of *The Signifying Monkey* called *The Trope of the Talking Book*. Um, in that chapter, he lays out um, what he describes as a signifying chain of uh, episodes 
in uh, African-American slave narratives um, in which the um, the narrator um, uh, describes his naive encounter with European literacy, um, which is to say the um, first uh, first exposure to a book in which um, he somehow expects the book to be able to speak um, to him with a voice. And each instance, there's some variation in, in sort of how it, how it plays out. Uh, but uh, it, it seems to represent um, this uh, initiation into literacy um, where the narrator is looking... Sorry, I, I thought I'd shut that down. Um, is looking back at his um, former self um, as a you know as an innocent um, naive who didn't understand what literacy um, expressed or, or signified. Um, so uh, so there's a sort of dual moment. Um, you know, this person is now an author and a reader, uh, but uh, reflecting back on a on a time when he didn't uh, even understand that literacy or, or that books couldn't actually speak um, with a voice. So the episode in, in Morant's narrative um, is one in which he, um, as a captive of the Cherokees, um, is brought into an audience with um, the so-called Cherokee king, um, and he brings out his Bible and starts reading from it, um, and the king's daughter wants to see it, and she, and she, she kisses it, um, and then she's very sad because the book won't speak to her. Um, so he's... Um, According to Gates, he's kind of like attributing this naivete to the these Native Americans, um, the Cherokees, um, and that they don't understand that um, how reading works. That you're uh, kind of sounding out the, um, the this representation of speech in your head um, rather than expecting the book to speak to you directly. So it was a very influential reading, and it, and and it brought Morant's narrative to a lot of people's attention or a lot of literary scholars' attention attention and it's been taught a lot in African-American um, literary studies um, and also in early American literary studies. But the point of entry for most readers has been this particular episode um, and Morant's characterization of the trope of the talking book. So the intervention that I'm making in this chapter is like, um, is to point out like, well, that framing of the narrative um, and of the the talking book as a trope, which is a literary studies term meaning um, a use of figurative language, uh, in other words, something that doesn't we can't accept as being literally true, uh, is uh, it, it it's conducive to um, a kind of a misreading of the narrative, or at least it leaves a lot out. Gates would assert that. Um, it's purely a representation. That's not like this actually happened, and that's what he says uh, in that in that chapter. Um, that these aren't literal depictions of actual encounters with literacy. Instead, it's a, it's a figure, um, and these um, authors are all in conversation with one another. Um, but as I point out in this chapter, um, the talking book also exists in um, what I describe as an evangelical language ideology, um, which is to say that. Uh, John Morant um, and some of the other authors that that uh, Gates is writing about were uh, heavily influenced by um, by Protestant theology, um, by writers like George Whitfield um, and Richard Baxter, who also in their work describe um, talking books or at least uh, attribute um, a speaking voice to the Bible. So, in 
Morant's description, he's also possibly evoking an evangelical trope of a Bible speaking with a voice. But also, uh, there's uh, attestation for this idea of literacy having um, a voice in Cherokee oral histories and in the, the history of Cherokee literacy. Um, and, and so that's the larger intervention in the chapter. And the reason I describe it as ethnohistoricist um, as opposed to traditional literary historicism, um, because my point is that Gates's framing, if we think about it as, as purely a trope, leaves out the possibility that it actually has something to do with the Cherokees' responses to, um, to European literacy. Um, and I cite these, uh, these histories of the um, invention of the Cherokee alphabet um, by, by Sequoia. Um, and uh, his description, or at least the description that's attributed to him in these accounts, um, where he says that, uh, he, you know, they describe these encounters where the Cherokees like saw European letters and were like, uh, you know, how do the Europeans do this? What's this, or the Americans do this? What's this magic where, where letters can speak? Um, which is the reason that um, they uh, called uh, alphabetic literacy talking leaves, these pages that can talk. Um, so I, I can't really attest to the accuracy of those accounts, but the uh, the framing of it as purely a literary phenomenon um, sort of precludes that question of what does this have to do with the ethno-historical context for Morant's narrative. In their narratives, what were the circumstances and revisions thereto of Captain Thomas Morris and Thomas Riddouts receiving and reading respectively Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra, and Fenelon's Adventures of Telemachus from their Native American captors. In addition, how did the structures of these narratives form an allegorical nexus? And how do these narratives compare to James Smith's 1799 uh, account? The uh, early chapters of the book uh, are primarily dealing with um, with Protestant captivity narratives, at least the, the first section, and, and then um, Jesuit and Protestant in the second section. Uh, so they're uh, pretty much like religious discourses. Uh, the uh, This later, this last chapter, especially um, chapter six, uh, treats more um, secular instances of literacy. And, and so I was really interested in seeing how um, some of the same dynamics that play out in religious discourse also play out in kind of literary discourse. Because um, Captain Thomas Morris and Thomas Rideout um, were both um, sort of self-styled gentlemen, um, British gentlemen who, who were captured, um, Morris primarily by Miami Indians and um, Thomas Rideout by Shawnees, um, who received um, literary works instead of, um, instead of Bibles. And, and that was really appropriate to their own discourse communities. So Morris, um, uh, re depending on which account you read of his um, published journal, either purchased or was received as a gift um, a volume of Shakespeare's plays um, from a, a Potawatomi um, named the Little Chief. This was really before he was uh, captured, um, but he carried it into his encounter with the Miamis. And Rideout received um, a, a whole um, sort of bunch of books um, from his uh, Shawnee captor, his principal captor, who he described as his friend, um, Kakina Thuka. Um, but the one that um, he highlights is the um, is uh, Fenelon's uh, The Adventures of Telemachus, which was a very popular um, Enlightenment allegory. Uh, 
what Morris describes is how he was um, approaching this Miami fort, and he was there as a um, as a diplomatic um, emissary um, following or still during um, Pontiac's war. Um, so he was going out into um, the um, towards the Illinois country to announce that the that the French had settled with the um, English and that all of these territories really belong to the English or the British now. Um, it was a pretty unwelcome message that he was carrying into Indian country. Um, he describes how he was approaching this um, Miami town, fortified town, um, on the um, on the Miami River, uh, and he was. Um, and all of the inhabitants of the village sallied forth to kill the Britishman, uh, to kill him, um, except he um, was oblivious to them um, because he was sitting in this canoe um, reading the um, Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra um, from the volume that the little chief had given him. Uh, so that's a, sort of a paraphrase of, of his description. Um, and... Um, you know, so in, in his account there, it's almost like Shakespeare... Um, because he's such an absorbed reader, Shakespeare saves his life. I became very interested in the allegorical parallels between Anthony and Cleopatra and um, and Morris's account. Um, and you know, without going into too much detail, Anthony, Anthony and Cleopatra is the um, the locus classicus and and Shakespeare's oeuvre for um, this idea of killing the messenger or for the treatment of messengers. So it had a very specific relation to Morris's function as a as a messenger from the British, um, who was um, was uh, communicating um, with uh, Indian country. Uh, and there's quite a bit more in Anthony and Cleopatra that relates very specifically to Morris's um, Morris's narrative. Uh, similarly, the adventures of Telemachus um, for Thomas Rideout, um, it, it features a scene um, in which. Um, the um, captive uh, Telemachus, the, the son of Odysseus, he's captive among Egyptians, um, and he very sensibly feels his um, his lack of reading material. Um, so it, it's a very meta moment in, in which uh, this captive is, at least prospectively, like reading this chapter early in Telemachus that describes another captive who... Um, is dying to have some books um, and Telemachus encounters this priest to Apollo who gives him a book. So this sort of indigenous figure in Egypt gives him a book and, you know, and makes Telemachus happy in the same way that Kakinathuka is giving a book, the adventures of Telemachus to, um, to write out. And there are other um, very uncanny parallels as well. Uh, it raises the question of whether the, uh, the books that um, they were reading um, then influenced their narratives, their discourse, or whether they were more um, simply part of their experience, um, the story of their narratives. Um, but uh, it's really an unanswerable, or it's a question that can't be answered definitively. So they both contrast James Smith's narrative, and he doesn't really have these same kind of allegorical moments. He's reading, um, he's reading the Bible and, and a book of sermons. Um, but uh, the, the, the contrast that, that I highlight is that um, for Morris um, and for Rideout, their books help them to withstand the circumstances, the cultural pressures of their captivity, kind of to maintain their discursive affiliation um, with the literary culture of England, even as they're carried into captivity. Whereas for Smith, that, um, that kind of literary or um, 
literacy sustenance enables him to immerse himself more deeply in what was effectually his adoptive community um, since he was adopted by migrants from Ganawaka or, or um, uh, Ganawaka Iroquois in, in Ohio. Um, he was younger than the other two, and he was um, sort of lower class than the other two. He didn't have the same kind of fancy education. Um, and uh, by reading and writing, um, he sustained enough of his natal culture to feel free to uh, to explore his adoptive culture. Smith's narrative um, was the source that really launched the book project for me you know, many, many years ago. Um, because he describes this moment um, in which his books were missing and he panicked. Uh, and this is early on in his captivity. And he asked his captors, you know, what happened to my books? And they said something like the puppies had carried them off. And then he sees that they're building this wooden structure. And he has this fantasy that they're building a gallows because they're so displeased at his reading. They're going to to hang him um, as, as a punishment for reading. Uh, and then he's relieved when he sees that they're just hanging up furs to dry on the gallows. Um, but uh, months later, they come back to that same site and a, a group of captors call him over and they found his books you know, in, a, in the leather pouch that he had them in, like resting up against a tree. And so that moment where they kind of reunite him with his books is a real turning point in his captivity narrative. Um, it, you know, it's from that moment that he seems to narratively and perhaps uh, in, in his experience um, really embrace his contact with his adopted people. Um, so that's what really made me curious about the role of literacy and literacy events and captivity narratives. How did Charles Johnson's note writing in the margins of a copy of the 1788 debates on the Convention of Virginia, the Virginia Convention's ratification debates, sustain his self-assessment as an exemplar of discursive civility during captivity, despite writing a misrecreational, what he described as savagery? Also, why do you conclude the book with Fanny Kelly? So uh, Charles Johnston, who, um, like um, Rideout, was captured by uh, Shawnee Indians, uh, was um, he? He kind of goes the furthest of the, um, at least of the um, captor, captive authors that I've discussed so far um, in terms of. Uh, you know, sort of explicitly making a case against the Indians um, and, and saying that you know they can never be civilized. Um, you know, and he's uh, you know publishing this um, book, and um, I think it's 1820. Um, but so really, sort of joining with the um, you know with the removal debates. Uh, you know, at that moment, um, he uh, kept a journal. Um, that he subsequently lost, but he kept a journal in the margins of the 1788 debates of the Convention of Virginia and the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, and uh, one of the um, when he describes that scene where he's starting to write in his journal, um, he claims um, using coal dust ink. He claims that the Shawnees like were really amazed and astonished uh, by what he was doing with his European literacy. But he juxtaposes his activity of writing in the journal um, with a description of um, the Shawnees um, pastimes, as he calls them, um, and t talks about how they were playing a game um, called nosy, um, N-O-S-E-Y, um, which consisted of like administering like finger flicks um, to the noses of one another um, as part of a, you know, just like having a big laugh while they were hurting each other's noses. Um, so this juxtaposition, uh, I, I think, really epitomizes his self-conception of um, himself as a practitioner of, of literacy um, in contrast to the illiterate 
barbaric Shawnees. Um, he has a civilized pastime. They have like a, a idiotic childish one. And uh, you can extrapolate from that to his later claims that uh, any attempt to um, really uh, imbue the Native Americans with literacy and make them candidates um, for um, participation in this um, in this new nation that's being formed at this uh, moment with the debates on the convention um, is is probably hopeless. So in the in the epilogue, and I struggled a lot with this project to find kind of the right epilogue. Epilogue. I had a lot of versions of it. Um, I turned to the Civil War era captivity of, of Fanny Kelly, um, in which she also describes these moments and um, in which um, her captors are giving her um, a book to read, or her, her principal captors giving her a book. Um, there's this one moment um, in which she encounters another um, another fellow captive and a woman who had um, you know belonged to a different band of uh, of Lakota Indians. Um, she sees her. And her captor gives her a book to give to the, her um, fellow captive, the stranger, um, and uh, she faints because um, it's a it's a Victorian narrative, so um, you know there's fainting involved. Um, but the point is, is, like the the book almost becomes like the sort of like calling card um, that the captor associates literacy with with both of them, and and therefore. Um, introduces it into this um, into this chance encounter. So for me, um, her her narrative was a way to bring my discussion into the 19th century, um, bring it into a discussion of uh, narratives that are tending more towards um, uh, fiction or, or novelistic prose. Um, but most of all, just to sort of sum up um, my um, you know the, the the claims throughout the book um, with a with a final illustration. Um, and part of what really interested me about her captivity um, was the way it it combined the um, the religious rhetoric from the early chapters, um, you know, as a um, as a function of literacy um, with the literary culture of that final chapter. Um, so it just worked well as a kind of concluding illustration. So I have a final question for you. Uh, what's up for you next? Are you working on any projects, going on vacation? What's next for you? <laughs> um, I, I am working on a, a new project, and it's um, it's outside the field of uh, early American or Native American studies. Uh, I have uh, another interest um, in uh, the history of um, English education, um, which is to say in high school literature instruction. Um, and uh, so the, the book that I'm working on now um, is uh, is titled um, The High School Canon, Reading Across the Generations. Uh, and, and it actually, um, even though it seems like a very disparate subject, it, it has um, a real relation um, with allegories of encounter and with my previous scholarship because it's a reception study. It's about um, what books meant um, to um, a very different kind of captive audience in these, um, you know, millions and millions of high school students over generations. So I thank you for being on the show today, Professor Newman. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for your for your really interesting questions. So the book is Allegories of Encounter, Colonial Literacy, and Indian Captivities. Out uh, just actually a few months ago, uh, published by UNC Press, as well as the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture. On behalf of Professor Newman and the New Books Network's Native American Studies channel, this is Ryan Tripp signing off, and I hope you tune in next time.